0: The head of the county's Law Enforcement Review Board proposes major changes.
1: So he just would like there to be more transparency because he feels that it will boost
0: public trust. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego prepares to receive hundreds of Afghan refugees.
2: Often these refugees are people with degrees. Uh, They've they've had nice middle-class lives in Afghanistan. Recreating that life in the US is, is something of a challenge.
0: We talk with a Native American tribal leader in San Diego about Indigenous People's Day and Daniel Craig's final outing as James Bond is the topic of the latest Cinnamon Junkie podcast. That's ahead on Midday Edition. A number of reforms being proposed to the county's Citizens Law Enforcement Review Board would constitute the biggest changes to the board since its beginnings nearly 30 years ago. The board is charged with investigating deaths that occur in San Diego County Sheriff's custody. The changes include allowing board members to attend death scene investigations and have oversight of jail medical staff. The proposals come from Paul Parker, executive officer of the review board, in an effort to expand the board's access and authority. The reforms would have to get approval from multiple entities, including the Sheriff's Department. Joining me is Kelly Davis, a San Diego writer who's been covering this story. This latest article was a collaboration with the San Diego Union Tribune. And Kelly, welcome. Hi, thank you, Maureen. Now, I mentioned a couple of changes included in the reform proposal. Can you give us an idea of the full scope of the changes being proposed?
1: Yeah, there are several proposals, and I just want to make clear the one you mentioned about the ability to respond to death scenes. Paul Parker, the executive officer, kind of the head of CLERB, he will be likely be the one to respond to death scenes. And then a couple other proposals, he would like to expand the board's authority to include oversight of, of jail medical staff. Currently, their oversight is limited to what's referred to as sworn staff. So those are uh, sheriff's deputies and probation officers. Um, He would like to work with the county to pursue policy changes or statewide legislation to increase the transparency of civilian oversight. And um, he would like the sheriff's department to stop requesting that the medical examiner seal every death in custody. So right now, if somebody dies in sheriff's custody, the sheriff's department will by just routinely send a letter to the medical examiner asking that a case be sealed. And this means that the public and family members might have to wait months to find out the official cause of death.
0: Why, for instance, would having Paul Parker, the executive officer of the review board, have access to a death scene improve the board's oversight responsibilities?
1: So, so let's say you know it's it's someone who dies in a, a cell in a county jail. There, there's so much evidence that that can be collected at the scene. Um, just you could sometimes see immediately how the person died. Uh, if it was a suicide, was there a note left behind? Uh, were there were there other cellmates, uh, you know, who might have witnessed what would happen? Uh, are there other, you know, people in the jail who witnessed what happened? So he would have the ability to interview those people, and and not have to get a, a second or third hand account. Uh, you know, which he would he would eventually get from the sheriff's department's uh, homicide investigation, or from the medical examiner's investigation. But it's just, you know, the chance for 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 him to see firsthand what the scene looks like, possibly collect evidence or observe the collection of evidence.
0: And what kind of access to investigative materials does the review board have now? A lot of
1: it, I mean, they're really relying on the sheriff's department. Uh, they get, they'll get, they get a full homicide investigation if someone dies in custody, uh, but they sometimes have to wait up to a year for, for that case to be turned over. Um, they get anything... That's available to the public, such as the autopsy report. Um, and they can interview deputies, but that happens via questionnaire. And there could be a back and forth for clarification, but um, they don't interview deputies face to face. And they'd also like more of a chance to interview witnesses face to face. You know, if there's a, a shooting by a sheriff's deputy, uh, they, they'd like the chance to interview anyone who witnessed that shooting. Right now, they're only getting um, uh, evidence interviews that the, the sheriff collected
0: now for many years San Diego county jails have had among the highest inmate death rates in California what's the situation now
1: well uh, Jeff McDonald uh, the UT reporter who's been my collaborator on a lot of, uh, of stories on deaths in, in custody we 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 quenched we crunched the latest numbers up through 2019 and and San Diego continues to have the highest mortality rate among California's uh, six largest county jails.
0: Would the proposed Law Enforcement Review Board reforms address just deaths in custody, or is there a wider agenda on oversight over the Sheriff's Department?
1: Most of, of what's being discussed on on Tuesday is, are about deaths in custody, but he, yes, they would like more transparency. Uh, Paul Parker would really like the public to be able to sit in on clerks' deliberations over a case because they also investigate cases of, of officer misconduct or deputy misconduct. So, so he just would like there to be more transparency because he feels that, you know, with that transparency, it will, be, it will boost tru- uh, public trust in law enforcement oversight.
0: And what kind of reaction have these reforms gotten from county officials?
1: So so Nathan Fletcher, he's a chair of the Board of Supervisors, and uh, last year he boosted CLERB's budget. He gave uh, the board authority to uh, investigate some additional things, such as cases where a uh, member of the public suffers great bodily injury at the hands of of law enforcement. So he supports a more robust law enforcement, more transparent law enforcement. And as for the Sheriff's Department, they say that they support CLERB and and they support transparency, but a spokeswoman did not respond to the specific recommendations on the agenda when we reached out to the sheriffs for, for comment.
0: And which agencies have got to approve the changes? What's the process like to get these reforms moving?
1: So, so first, so these changes are, are coming before the board, CLERB's board, which are appointed volunteers. Um, CLERB also has a, a paid professional investigative staff, uh, but the board kind of makes the rules. So the board will have to approve the changes first. Uh, some of the changes I think will need to go to the board of county board of supervisors if they change CLERB's charter, kind of CLERB's original operating rules. And then if there are any changes that could affect what's known as the police officer bill of rights, which is a state law, uh, which really dictates what the public can and can't know about police officers. If there's anything that would change um, that uh, law, that would need to be done by the legislature.
0: Do supporters believe that these reforms, these changes would impact the way law enforcement is conducted in San Diego County? I
1: think so. You know, pa- Paul Parker has worked really hard to, to do community outreach and he's he's I think one over folks who are pushing for law enforcement reform. I I, I spoke to you know, there there's a coalition who has is, who is formed um around pushing for, for law enforcement oversight to be more transparent and They've been showing up to meetings virtually, you know, weighing in, providing public comment, and they felt that they've been listened to, and they were really pleased to see these items on the agenda.
0: I've been speaking with Kelly Davis, a San Diego writer who covered this story for the San Diego Union Tribune. Kelly, thank you very much. Thank you, Maureen. San Diego will become the new home for at least a 1,000 refugees from Afghanistan. The San Diego County Board of Supervisors is preparing to help in the resettlement and is asking for federal aid. The refugees headed here will be among more than 58,000 Afghans entering the U.S. who escaped the Taliban takeover of the country. Among them are Afghan military members and former interpreters for U.S. forces. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh has the story of one refugee family getting back to the difficult task of creating a new life in their adopted country
1: turn right on north carolina 150.
2: lucky a former interpreter for u.s forces sits in the passenger seat of a tractor trailer on a drive through north carolina we're only using his nickname the one provided by u.s troops since he still has family back in afghanistan so how do you like truck driving
4: it's good i like it not that bad i like it yeah it's uh, the only thing I, I had no other option
2: lucky is training to be a long-haul truck driver He settled into San Diego after receiving a visa in 2017. He's now rebooting his life in America after a recent harrowing escape from his former homeland.
5: I was stuck there. I tried to get out from there as soon as possible.
2: Lucky hadn't expected to return to Afghanistan, but his mother fell seriously ill.
5: And my brother called me that she is asking for you. Like she's in hospital. Uh, I don't know if she's going to make it, you know. So I just decided to go there in emergency for a week
2: or 10 days. So he took a chance, thinking the U.S. wouldn't pull out until September. He even brought his young children. But things changed almost overnight. By mid-August, Lucky was trapped when his village fell to the Taliban. True to his nickname, Lucky and his family were helped by American veterans who stepped in to guide their former translators out of the country. He made it out, although many didn't. Eric Schwartz is president of Refugees International. And all indications are that um, the Afghans, like other refugee groups, will become, you know, uh, important contributors to American society, help address labor shortage issues uh, in places like the middle of the country where there are real um, uh, challenges in that regard. So this will be a good news story. They are also one of the groups calling for a pathway to citizenship for Afghans being processed through U.S. military bases who don't qualify for other programs like special immigration visas. Also, $5 billion to aid in resettlement. They also want the president to raise the total number of refugees allowed in the U.S. to 200,000 for the next two years. A relatively modest increase given the tens of thousands of Vietnamese who immigrated to the U.S. after the war.
5: We have a small refrigerator here. Let me show you. Uh, I have, I, uh, my wife cooked some food for me.
2: Lucky gives me a virtual tour from inside the truck. As the sun was going down in North Carolina, we talked as the truck was being unloaded.
4: To be honest, I'm still uh, not a normal, like uh, I cannot even sleep. Like for the last four days, I didn't sleep like two hours, three hours. After that situation that I went
2: through my kids. In San Diego, he had been a translator for the Afghan community. That ended when he was trapped in Afghanistan. His new life is now in Texas, where he lives with his brother-in-law. He says it's been tougher on the kids, especially his young daughter.
4: They don't even go out, they don't play with kids. They're scared, and even
5: I took her to the doctor, uh, uh, because she was not eating, she jumped when she was sleeping, she jumped and she feels she's still in Afghanistan.
2: Still in Afghanistan, like his mother, who did pull through. Although Lucky doesn't think he'll ever see his home country again, he's focused on his family's future here.
0: I'm speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. And, Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Now, did Lucky and his family want to come back to San Diego but relocated to Texas?
2: Yeah, I. Th- I think he did want to stay here. In fact, I'm pretty sure he did, but I think it was just a matter of economics. Uh, San Diego is an expensive place to live. He didn't have any work lined up. Texas was cheaper. They could stay with family and stay together. So that was just a way of saving money. Uh, you know, often people, these refugees are people with degrees. Uh, they've, they've had nice middle-class lives in Afghanistan, and they would have kept going on if things had stayed the way they were. Um, recreating that life in the U.S. Is, is something of a challenge, and it's something that all of these uh, people who are coming from Afghanistan are going to face as they, they arrive here in the U.S.
0: Well, it sounds like people who escape from the fall of Afghanistan are traumatized. How is Lucky's family coping?
2: So as we heard, his daughter has been in therapy. I've heard similar stories from other Afghans. PTSD, I think, is going to be a real issue. They were traumatized by what had happened. In the case of Lucky's family, the kids were Americans. They hadn't experienced anything like the fall of Kabul and the turmoil at the airport. So much like American veterans, this is going to take time and probably some professional help before they really get over these issues.
0: Now, the San Diego County Board of Supervisors is preparing the county to receive at least 1,000 Afghan refugees. What kind of help and support do groups like Refugees International say the refugees are going to need?
2: Well, you know, California has taken in more Afghans than any other state, and San Diego has been one of those hubs, though Sacramento has actually had the largest influx. For San Diego, we know what the answer is going to be. It's going to be housing, housing, and housing. It's expensive and hard to come by. So the second thing will also be transportation. Many of them will uh, locate farther east. They'll need a car to get around. Um, you know, Aside from housing assistance and a stipend from the federal government in California, Um, they're going to need help with job training. So it's going to be an adjustment. The Afghan community is pretty well established, but it's relatively small. They, They actually may need help connecting with one another or even connecting older Afghans who may have immigrated as far back as the Soviet invasion and may not have really strong ties to the latest wave of immigrants that are coming in. So there may be some help needed with community building resources. Now, you know, Lucky had been a translator. He had worked with several groups in San Diego. This actually might be his chance to get back into his old line of work and and come back to San Diego.
0: Now, since many of the refugees once helped the U.S. military, are bases like Camp Pendleton helping with the influx of Afghan refugees?
2: I get that question all the time, whether or not Pendleton is going to be a part of this. And um, you know, I'm told they're still seeking out other military sites to house the Afghans if they need more space. I've not heard anything about Pendleton being on that list. Of course, Pendleton played a huge role in the re- relocation of, the, of Vietnamese refugees in the years after the war. I'm not sure that Pendleton has a lot of empty barrack space the way they did years ago. I know they're, they're looking for ready-made buildings rather than uh, creating, you know, tent cities. I'm actually from Indiana. They've enlisted a National Guard training center in southern Indiana, Camp Atterbury, which has a lot of spare housing because they, they have to house National Guard troops when they come in. So right now, um, I think this is still a little bit in flux, but um, I, it looks like they have, with these eight bases, they have enough space right now to, uh, to house the people that have come in so far.
0: Now, San Diego has a long history, as you mentioned, of accepting refugees from America's wars. And you say the number of Afghan refugees coming here is not anywhere near the number of Vietnamese who resettled here in the
2: 1970s. Sure. we're talking. There were hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees. The largest number actually didn't arrive in the U.S. until the late 1970s when a deal was worked out with the Vietnamese government. In contrast, at the moment, US Northern Command said they're at these eight bases, there are about 53,000 Afghans. Now, President Biden has increased the number of refugees who can be resettled to to the United States to 125,000. The new limit is double the 62,000 refugees, which Biden had raised in May from the previous limit under the Trump administration, which was only like 15,000. But that's all refugees, not just Afghans. So Refugees International wanted a higher cap of 200,000 for the next two years, which is still far less than what we saw after Vietnam.
0: And is there an estimate of how many Afghan refugees need to be resettled after the Taliban takeover?
2: So, you know, I've heard the high end of, you know, several hundred thousand people, but we really don't know at this point. I mean, it's a, a relatively small number have come so far.
0: And what about a pathway to citizenship for the Afghans who help the U.S. military? Is that something the U.S. is considering?
2: So right now, let's say former translators like Lucky should qualify under the Special Immigration Visa program. Right now, the people who have come to the U.S. are brought in so quickly, it actually may take years before they develop some sort of legal status. Technically, you're not a refugee until you leave your country of origin. So groups are lobbying to sort of loosen that definition to allow people to apply directly from Afghanistan. There's also this concept called parole, where the U.S. can wave someone through the process regardless of their status. Groups are basically trying to implore the U.S. government to just get creative so they can deal with this potential humanitarian crisis before it gets any worse. I've been speaking with KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. Long ago, when the public square was
0: the only place to share news events and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
6: This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison
3: Project. Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie.
0: Thank you for listening to KPBS podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square where you learn not only about the headlines of the day but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again.
7: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Today is Indigenous People's Day. And last week, President Biden became the first U.S. president to recognize the holiday and issued a proclamation which said in part, today we recognize Indigenous people's resilience and strength, as well as the immeasurable positive impact that they have made on every aspect of American society. Joining me, to talk this Indigenous Peoples Day is Bo Mazzetti, chairman of the Rincon Band of Luiseño Indians. Chairman Mazzetti, welcome.
4: Uh, good afternoon. I'm glad to be with you folks.
7: So what are your thoughts on President Biden being the first president to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day? We're humble
4: and grateful, our Indian people in general, to finally be recognized a little more. Our people, the Luiseño people, have been in our territory for more than ten thousand years recognition of our existence as what has been lacking throughout history so as things change we're not saying to do away with history but let's get history correct and include the indian people in our history so this is a major step forward to, to recognizing the indian people throughout the nation uh in san diego county for example we have uh 18 independent uh, federal recognized tribal governments, more than any other county in the United States. This just adds more recognition, and we appreciate appreciate it.
7: Despite that recognition by the president, Columbus Day is still a nationally recognized holiday. Do you think that should be reexamined?
4: I think history needs to not necessarily be erased. But to be clarified, a lot of things, a lot of people were left out of history. That's what needs to be uh, corrected. Let's tell the accurate history.
7: Can you talk about Indigenous Peoples Day and and, uh, what it means for you and your tribe?
4: Well, for us and our people and San Diego County tribe, well, throughout the state, all of our tribes, uh, it means a time to come together, to look at ourselves, to look what we're doing for ourselves and the surrounding communities. How are we good neighbors? So it opens up a lot of things and it opens up a lot of interaction with our other tribes throughout the state. That recognition, you know, says, okay, let's look at it. What are we doing? Let's also be involved with the history. Let's let's tell it correctly.
7: Last week, Governor Gavin Newsom signed Assembly Bill 101 into law requiring California high school students to take ethnic studies to graduate. How important is that to educating students on the history, resilience and contributions of indigenous people?
4: Well, it's extremely important. Uh, if you go through the textbook, the Indian people in general are left out, not mentioned. So what we're looking at now is correcting history. Tell the contributions, tell about the, what we say, indigenous. Well, we are the indigenous people of the United States. We were here before anyone else. Uh, that's skimmed over in history. But you have to look at all the contributions of the tribes throughout the nation have provided. For example, a lot of the Constitution uh, that we have today, they looked at the Cherokee and other tribes that were well advanced in terms of having constitutions and structure. Most people don't know that.
7: And as you mentioned, San Diego County is home to more federally recognized tribes than any other county in the U.S., home to 18 in all. Uh, What would you like San Diegans to know about our local tribes on this Indigenous Peoples Day?
4: Well, our local tribes, like I said earlier, have been in the area, in our actual areas that we're in now, uh, in excess of 10,000 years. I also would like folks to understand all of the contributions that our local tribe provide back to our surrounding communities, you know, from, from law enforcement, from uh, firefighting, uh, again, to no, no cost to our neighbors. What the tribes are actually doing for the surrounding communities needs to be uh, uh, put out there more and understood.
7: And and what are the top issues you would say our local tribes have in common?
4: I think all tribes used to have a major issue with survival. Make it simple, you know. Until the California people authorized gaming to be operated on Indian federally recognized Indian land, uh, all the tribes were in poverty. So by having that opportunity to have gaming, it brought us out of poverty. It brought us. To where we can afford education for our kids. We can afford good health care. And we thank the taxpayers for giving us that opportunity and giving us that helping hand. We, in turn, have extended a hand out to our surrounding communities.
7: Now, you grew up on the reservation. I believe your father was in tribal leadership like you are today. How has your reservation changed since your childhood?
4: Well, it's a complete change. (laughs) We can afford to. Pay our electricity, so we have water. When I was growing up, sometimes take electricity to run the wells for water. Uh, sometimes we couldn't afford to pay the bills; we wouldn't have water. Sometimes we had we were without water for two or three weeks at a time. As the tribes have evolved, one we definitely can afford electrical bills now. Number two is we get more attention paid to our needs than we used to. You know, it's, you got to understand tradition has been. You take the tribes, and that's if you'll notice where the reservations are, some of the worst land in the whole surrounding area. And that was the idea. You take the Indians, you put them out there as far away from white settlements as possible. That's the way the reservations were put together. The attitude and schools have changed. It used to be when I was going to school, you know, the Indian kids are going to quit anyhow, so I put a bunch of time in with them. And that's what happened. But that attitude has changed. And we can, like I say, now afford to help our kids go to college and pursue different types of trades if they prefer not to go to college. Well, let's learn a good trade.
7: So how will you be observing Indigenous Peoples Day?
4: Each tribe has a different way they're going to, uh, to uh, recognize the day. Ourselves here, we're going to get together later on, have a little celebration, talk about some of the culture, try to get some youth involved so they learn. We need to pass this down like it was passed down to us. The tradition, the custom is important to share.
7: I've been speaking with Bo Mazzetti, chairman of the Rincon Band of Luiseno Indians. Chairman Mazzetti, as always,
0: thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Home key is the centerpiece of California's multi-billion dollar plans to fight homelessness. Started last year, it focuses on turning old or underused businesses, especially motels, into permanent supportive housing for the homeless. That's supposed to get more people housed faster and at a lower cost than building projects from scratch. And in some California cities, there's another upside. They see Home Key as a way to turn neglected properties in sometimes blighted neighborhoods into something that improves the wider community. To find out more, The California Report's host, Saul Gonzalez, went to one street in Orange County.
6: Beach boulevard is an eight-lane-wide monster of a thoroughfare, packed full of decaying 1950s and 60s-era motels, with names like the J Palace, the Riviera, and the Americana. Now a half-century ago, these businesses were sleek symbols of America's love affair with the open road, where families would pull in for a night or two while visiting nearby Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm. But what are the motels like today? Well, let's have Marletta tell us.
8: They are about sex drugs, and violence. That sums that up in three words. Sex, drugs, and violence. There's a lot of uh, prostitution, there's a lot of drugs, and there's a lot of violence going on all at the same time. Behind the
6: walls of these? Behind
8: the walls of these hotels up and down Beach Boulevard.
6: I met Marletta, who doesn't want her last name used because she's embarrassed about her living situation, in a parking lot along Beach Boulevard. She's homeless herself, and when she has the money, will often check into one of the motels. But she says the stays are never restful.
8: Yes, there's been times where I thought I was really going to die. So, it's and scary out here.
6: And the motels kind of create this kind of environment they're where... They're 10
8: times worse. They, times they are the, the, um, they're the, the eye of it. You know what I mean? That's where it begins.
6: But because of Home Key, there are changes coming to some of the aging motels along Beach Boulevard. Clearly there's an epidemic of, the, of this in, in Orange County. But it also creates an opportunity for it. That's exactly right. That's Michael Massey, an executive with Jamboree, an Orange County nonprofit housing developer. And the opportunity is the sheer number of blighted motel properties in Orange County, a lot of them potential sites for new homeless housing using home key dollars. Massey says the motels are already a kind of housing for the homeless, like they are with Marletta, except with people living in sometimes squalid and dangerous conditions.
2: We know that um, this is often housing of last resort. So when people can't pull everything together in order to to enter the housing market, they'll use motels as a place to live to to seek shelter.
6: Massey's company has received $26 million in Homekey funds to buy and renovate two motels along Beach Boulevard. And hoping to get a new round of Homekey funding, Jamboree is eyeing 10 more properties for redevelopment. Massey says cities increasingly see Homekey as a way to both help the homeless and improve blight. We're getting phone calls and
2: cities are calling us and asking us, how did you do that? How did you make that happen? We have these motels as well. We see this as a win-win situation where you take a problem and turn it into a solution. Cities get that now. They're understanding that. And because we've been successful, because other developers have been successful, yes, we think this is uh, an opportunity to really move the needle at a time when, when it's desperately needed.
6: ANAHEIM MAYOR HARRY SIDDU AGREES. HIS CITY HAS A LOT OF AGING MOTEL PROPERTIES, AND IT'S JUST DONE ITS FIRST MOTEL TO HOMELESS HOUSING CONVERSION. SO YOU, AS MAYOR OF ANAHEIM, YOU DON'T MIND THESE PROPERTIES BEING TURNED INTO LONG-TERM HOUSING. YOU THINK THAT'S A GREAT OPPORTUNITY?
4: ABSOLUTELY NOT. ABSOLUTELY NOT. I MEAN, WE HAVE A LOT OF HOMELESS PEOPLE. YOU KNOW, WE HAVE, THEY ARE IN the SHELTERS RIGHT NOW. WE NEED TO TRANSITION THEM INTO a PERMANENT HOUSING
6: SOMEHOW. And this shows that I, I'm going to do as many as possible if the funding is available to get these people off the street into the and clean the neighborhoods. As she tries to survive on the streets of Orange County, Marletta offers this advice to local and state officials managing Home Key. Move fast because the need is great and stick to ambitious plans.
8: I mean, I know it's probably more complicated than that, but it's hard out here you know it's a lot of homeless people and i think these streets especially around here because it's really nasty and dirty would be a little more you know calmer cleaner and i won't be scared when i'm walking up and down beach boulevard i got like two knives on me you know what i mean like they need to clean it up and the first thing they need to do is give people somewhere
2: to live
8: That
0: piece was reported by California Report host Saul Gonzalez as part of a partnership between KCRW and the California Report. During
7: the pandemic, people have taken up lots of new hobbies and activities, and that includes yoga. And some yoga instructors have found ways to create culturally sensitive spaces for students of color in an industry where many feel that white Westerners have co-opted the practice. The California Reports' Gabriela Frenes has the story.
5: When you picture a yoga studio in California, who are the people in the classes and who is leading these classes? Bring your palms together and lift your chest
0: secularizing yoga made us abandon this concept of lineage and at the same time it legitimized white american and european teachers presence as yoga masters becoming the yoga masters and the spokespeople for yoga
5: that's dr judith carlisle an instructor for the Center for Religion and Spirituality at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. She says the whitewashing of yoga has created an elitist culture within the practice. But when the pandemic hit, yoga became much more accessible because studios could use online platforms. Heather Haxo-Phillips is the owner of Berkeley-based studio Adeline Yoga. She noticed an increase in attendance for her online classes from people all over the country.
7: There are so many people living in communities that don't have access to high quality instruction. And we've been able to provide that in a much more comprehensive way. Before
1: people would drive two or three hours to come and take classes with us. And we're now able to set them up with a practice in their own
5: homes. And with the accessibility of simply logging in to join a yoga session, new students felt they could take on the practice in their own way. It's essential to be comfortable in a yoga class, especially for Black, Indigenous students of color who aren't really seen in these spaces. One way Adeline Yoga has reinforced engagement with students of color is by offering scholarships to BIPOC students like Renee Bedruzimon. I felt welcomed and I've appreciated the intention to include teachers of color and to create spaces for Black folks or people of color specifically. Tejal Patel is a South Asian American, Michigan-based yoga instructor and founder of Tejal Yoga. Half of her Tejal Yoga instructors are based in California, which has garnered a big following on the West Coast. We had experiences with the culture of whiteness, essentially, in yoga showing up and dominating the space. And also, not just dominating the space, but falling into the Typical class and race hierarchy tropes of making power dynamics and racializing our identities in a way that felt really exclusionary and very harmful. This experience motivated Patel to bring the practice back to its cultural roots by recentering South Asian instructors. And with the flexibility of teaching online, she's even had the opportunity to invite a teacher from India to lead a South Asian LGBTQIA practice. These are things I never really dreamed of and that I can say that because of the devastation of the pandemic, this little seed was able to flourish and grow into what it is now. And because of the increased accessibility virtual classes have created, Patel now plans to continue teaching exclusively online. Back at Loyola Marymount, Dr. Judith Carlisle is thinking about the way people can use this moment of interest in virtual classes to continue breaking down barriers that have historically colonized yoga.
8: When
0: we respond more to particular searches, then that just raises them up within the general algorithm itself. You can almost think of this as, a, almost as a, a type of digital activism, because by pursuing these things, you make them more available to other people, just like any other market economy. We have to remember that yoga is a product that is commoditized and commercialized within a market economy.
5: It's clear that as a result of the pandemic, yoga will continue to exist in a hybrid space, both online and offline. But regardless of where a class is being held, it's still possible to cultivate a comfortable atmosphere for all identities. For the California Report, I'm Gabriela Frenes.
6: Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today.
0: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. The latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, finally opened in cinemas after a long pandemic delay. On the latest edition of Cinema Junkie, host Beth Accomando speaks with Bond aficionado Gary Dexter about the final Daniel Craig 007 film. Here's that excerpt.
3: So Gary, you went to England to see the new Bond film. And before we talk about the film itself, tell me a little bit about the atmosphere in England right now.
9: It's crazy. The way the nation has embraced Bond this time is uh, very similar to Bond mania in the the hype of the Connery era. You can throw a stone essentially and hit some sort of Bond tie-in or promotion. Your watch. How strong is it? Fairly strong. We haven't had the time to test it properly, just be careful. This is going to go brilliantly. Omega shops have got the gun barrel motif on there. They've got prop displays inside. In fact, some of the props that are seen in the film, um, the portraits of the different M's. London had a gigantic 007 sculpture in Leicester Square ahead of the movie's debut, and then I guess they moved that over to the Albert Hall for the actual premiere. It's really exciting. It it, it definitely has a a vibe unlike any Bond that I've um, experienced here in the past.
3: So you're seeing Bond in what's probably the best conditions with all that excitement and mania going on, and you've already seen it twice, so what's your gut reaction to it?
9: It's unique. I've never seen a Bond like it. It's its own beast. Tonally, it seems very different. That being said, uh, it has callbacks to so many aspects of Bond in the past, both uh, cinematic and literary. And of course, if you're off on some tremendous plot with, heaven knows what, James Bond and a hassle with some terrible villain, if
4: he can use a Ronson lighter, let's say, or drive a Bentley motor car, or uh, stay in the Ritz Hotel, this all brings the reader back to Earth.
9: There's a lot of Fleming that's been left behind over the years, but this one, I think, more than any other, certainly at a time when they ran out of original, titles to use for, for the movies anyway, really pays homage and draws directly from a lot of literary Bond. It was, it was very exciting.
3: Well, I have to say that when I came out of it, I know that a lot of people are talking about the fact that it's almost three hours long, two hours and 45 minutes. But I have to say, my first reaction to it was it moved fast and it felt like it had all the classic Bond action, and yet it had this emotional weight to it as well, which was both surprising and a great way to wrap up the series.
9: I, I agree. I agree. It was it was very much um, Daniel's interpretation of Bond um, in keeping really with things that we'd seen from the get-go in Casino Royale. It carried emotional heft unlike we've ever seen before in a Bond, and it was all the better for it. I felt it was very much Craig saying goodbye to his tenure in the character. It reminded me a little bit of Harrison Ford and Han Solo. Craig's approach to this movie was kind of similar. He wanted a a sort of finality to his his arc, and uh, I think he achieved that, too.
3: Well, you mentioned these callbacks, and one thing I felt when I was watching it is there were these nice touches. Some of them were very overt, and some of them were more subtle, but you get, like, the very clear reference to Honor, Majesty, Secret Service... And then you get other things that are a little more subtle where he's in Jamaica, which can reference both the location of a couple of Bonds and also the fact that Ian Fleming himself was in Jamaica. So it was like these Easter egg kind of things going on.
9: It it certainly was. And it it began from the moment the credits dropped with the Dr. No style dots appearing on the screen. As soon as I saw that I thought, oh, I think I know where we're going here. And as you say, it ran throughout, yes, very much the the line from Majesty's, but also a lot of um, reorchestrations of Majesty's soundtrack in there as well. For from that point and elsewhere in the movie, and it, it was absolutely littered with callbacks. We had a, a copious amount of Aston Martins, including the DB5, has almost become traditional in, in this era. But of course, we had the, the Living Daylights era Aston appearing as well. What I thought was really surprising was. It, The Cuba setting was almost a callback to Die Another Day and I would have thought if you're avoiding callbacks, that would be the one to avoid, but I guess not, so it was (laughs) embraced everything. I absolutely loved the production design of uh, Safin's Lair because it was pure Ken Adam. I mean, it was just straight out of the... Ken Adam School of Design, and it was just absolutely fantastic. It looked looked beautiful on screen.
3: One of the things that I enjoyed about this is I felt it moved Bond into a more contemporary era in terms of how the female characters were, but without that kind of in-your-face way that they did it in some of the Pierce Brosnan ones, where, you know, I think M calls him out for being a dinosaur. Because I think
7: you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur, a relic of the Cold War whose boyish charms they wasted on me obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you.
2: Point taken.
7: Not quite, W7.
3: Money Penny yells at him for being a chauvinist pig. You know, this sort of behavior could qualify as sexual harassment. Really? This was much more kind of organic. You just have female characters who seem to be about to behave in the way we typically expect in a Bond film, but then they don't. But they don't do it in this way of this kind of very strident, oh, we're going to make a feminist statement. It's just like, hey, you expected me to be one thing, and I'm another. The world's
5: moved on, Commander Bond. You a double O? Two years. Nomi is highly skilled. She's slightly cocky. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. <clears throat> the one that works.
9: There's a young lady in Santiago I want you to meet. Hello. You're late. Very much so, I think none more so than uh, Anna Darmus' role. Her character is set up to be extremely ditzy, just the way she communicates and what she tells Bond and her style, and um, we find out that yes, that might genuinely be the, the character's nature, but it's no reflection on her competency yeah I agree. It was very much defying expectation, leading you one way and then taking you somewhere else it was, it was It was very very good and i I really enjoyed nomi as well and uh, and the, uh, the way she interacted with Bond and the evolution of the relationship on screen it was much more credible for a male female character interaction. She was forthright and a confident character in her own right without being sort of obnoxious or, or undermining Bond's fundamental nature, which really can't be too modern era, I think. It's got to be, Bond has to be true to his nature, and then confronting and interacting with 21st century women characters, um, and and that reality defining the direction that the plot goes in. And I think they did a fantastic job with that. I really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, because a couple of times we have instances where He thinks women are coming on to him or he thinks that he's going to be in some sort of sexual situation. And it's completely diffused with a bit of humor and kind of this sense of like, yeah, you're getting a little old and and this whole kind of trope is going away, but we'll play with it still.
0: That was Beth Alcamando speaking with Gary Dexter. To hear the full podcast that explores the Bond cinematic and literary universe, go to kpbs.org slash cinema junkie.